my friends. It's time for another episode of Old Head. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a part of my grand experiment to see if anyone really gives a shit to hear what I have to say about rock and roll, heavy metal, and other music-related topics. For those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, please, please, please go check out my YouTube page. You can just go search Old Head Podcast and it should come up. And there you will find some other rock and metal related videos. Mostly at this point, I'm just talking about some vinyl that I have. But occasionally you're going to find an album review or whatever else I happen to think of to throw up on there. And as usual, I can't stress enough how important it is for me to get your feedback I'm talking about requests, suggestions, recommendations, whatever you want to send my way, please do it at oldheadpodcast at gmail.com or down below in the comments if you're listening to this on the YouTube page I was just talking about. So, let's get started. This week, I decided I was going to talk about some albums that are very unique because they are the kind of albums that some people will always refer to as that album with the other singer. That's right, we are going to be talking about those albums where a successful band, for one reason or another, replaces their lead vocalist, and the resulting albums are either successful or, more often than not, are not very well received at all. Now, we're going to start things off by talking about the album that kind of got me thinking about this subject, and it's because the movie The Dirt about Motley Crue, which if you haven't seen it, you should see it, kind of touches on the period in Motley Crue where Vince Neil left the band, this was around 1992, and they ended up recruiting a singer named John Karabi. Now, John Karabi wasn't just some nobody. He was in a band called The Scream, who had released an album called Let It Scream in 1991. They weren't super successful, but they had some MTV airplay and whatnot, and apparently Nikki Six was a big fan of that album. And so, in 1992, when Vince Neil left or was fired, take your pick, the band ended up recruiting John Karabi as their new vocalist and guitar player, because John Karabi also played guitar. And so, in 1994, Motley Crue released the self-titled album that was supposedly going to launch this new version of Motley Crue into the stratosphere. But that didn't really happen. And if you listen to the album you kind of get why it didn't happen, even in hindsight. But first, let's talk about some of the good things about this album. The number one thing that you obviously have to point out is that John Karabi is arguably a way better singer than Vince Neil. And apparently, they worked very well together because John Karabi not only was a guitar player, but he also wrote songs, and so he brought ideas into the group also. And... At the time of the recording, by all accounts, everything was going very well. And that was a good thing, because this was the very first album that Motley Crue would be releasing under their new 
$25 million contract with Elektra Records. So they had a lot riding on this. And so, of course, who else do you go to to put out a fucking kick-ass record? None other than Mr. Bob Rock, who before this had produced their album Dr. Feelgood. So it seemed like this was destined to be another hit for Motley Crue. And from a fan viewpoint, everything started off pretty well. I remember seeing the premiere of the video for the song Hooligan's Holiday, and that's a fucking great song. Even back then, I remember seeing it and being like, this is actually pretty good. And today, I still really like that song. And the video really seems to bring across how well that version of the band was working together at the time. But soon after the premiere of that video, Motley Crue had kind of a falling out with MTV after an interview that went very badly. And so, suddenly, Motley Crue started losing the support of the one outlet that was probably the most responsible for really putting them on the map in the first place. And on top of that, you had a music scene that, in general, seemed to be trying to stomp all over the 80s hard rock bands that were once so successful. And so, initially, the album came out, and it seemed like it was going to be doing fairly well. But very quickly, the album fell off the charts, and then guess what? As it normally happens, their record label also quickly lost interest in this little project. So, why was it that the Motley Crue fans didn't seem to be all over this album? Well, I think that's because of two things. Number one, I think because of the whole grunge scene and alternative rock and all of those things, their fan base had already started to dwindle a little bit. And then on top of that, you were presenting this album that pretty much just sounds like a totally different band. And so it wasn't just that Motley Crue was having to figure out how to fit into this new grungified music scene. It was almost like they were a new band trying to find their way into this new music scene. Now, quickly going back to the positive aspects of this album, the one thing that I think they really had going for them was the fact that this shift in sound also came along with a new vocalist, so it really didn't seem like Motley Crue all of a sudden trying to do some different kind of music, it seemed a little bit more organic because the frontman of the band now had a very different voice. But not only that, the music got a little bit heavier. I wouldn't necessarily say they were trying to be grunge. Although the chorus for the song Dropping Like Flies does sound a little bit like Alice in Chains, but mostly I just feel like they were, like many other bands, reacting to the musical climate. They probably weren't listening to the new Poison album. They were probably listening to Alice in Chains. And so when you're a songwriter and a person that makes music, you're influenced by the things going on around you. And so I don't really think this is them trying to sell out. I think they literally just got kind of tired of trying to be a particular kind of band. It seems natural to me. But... Let's get to the bad parts about this album. So, as I said, it is heavy, 
it's aggressive, it's a different tone, and the first few tracks are pretty good, and then all of a sudden it hits this point where there's the song called Misunderstood, followed by the song Love Shine, and these both really sound like some other band is doing these songs. These songs and a few other on the album sound nothing like Motley Crue by any stretch of the imagination, and that's the problem, because Motley Crue already had their identity. And as I said before, this was like a brand new band that no one had ever heard of putting out this album. And unfortunately, that band sounds like any other number of 90s rock bands that were also trying to make it at the same time. So the album suffers the same fate that it would have suffered if anyone else had put it out. So the album isn't bad, it's just not special. And on top of that, it's too damn long. But that's not their fault. That is every fucking band in the 90s. Every fucking album had to be an hour long at least. I'm sorry, that is unnecessary. Just off the top of my head, I can't think of any album that's over an hour long that I love every minute of it. But by that point in the 90s, every band was like, oh my god, we got 80 minutes on a CD, let's fill up as much of it as possible. And that just wasn't necessary, ever. But at least I kind of enjoy this album. So they got that going for them. So let's move on to a band that did something very similar and ended up producing an album that I do not enjoy. That album is the album Van Halen 3. That album came out in 1998, and it is their first and only album with singer Gary Sharon, who was previously in the band Extreme. Now, first off, I like Extreme. They were good. Gary Sharon's a great singer, so let's get that out of the way. Now, the backstory is that in 1996, Sammy Hagar left or was fired from Van Halen. Isn't that the story always? I quit. No, he was fired. All right, you're all a bunch of dickheads. Let's just move on. Anyway, so on the extreme side of things, they had ended up disbanding because Nuno Betancourt wanted to go solo, and so Gary Sharon was available. And on the Van Halen side of things, they tried to do some sort of a weird reunion with David Lee Roth that didn't really work. They went on record saying that it wasn't supposed to be a reunion, but I don't know. I I have a feeling that they just got together again and went, oh, no, no, we still don't like each other. And so anyway, they ended up recruiting Gary Sharon as their new vocalist. And why shouldn't this be successful? Van Halen had already done this before. They had kicked out a very successful lead vocalist, and gotten in another lead vocalist who already had a career. So this seemed like something that they could just do again, right? Why not? And so once again, from the fan viewpoint, I remember the premiere of the video for the song Without You. Now, I like this song. It's really good. It's very catchy. It's just it's just good. I, I, can't, I can't fault them for this single because I think that it was pretty strong. But the rest of the album, almost all of the rest of the album, is kind of strange because it sounds kind of like Van Halen, 
But like Van Halen got a little confused. There's a little bit of experimentation that just falls flat every time. Now, Eddie is still Eddie. When Eddie Van Halen plays guitar, I'm going to listen. He's amazing. I don't need to tell you that. You already know. But the songs are just so meandering and unmemorable. I I can't even get over it. it it's just a very boring album. And I kind of get it from their point of view because when Sammy Hagar was in the band, it was almost like they could kind of do whatever kind of song they wanted and everyone just ate it up and it was successful. So why wouldn't they be able to just push it a little further with this new vocalist? At any rate, this album came out and it was moderately successful, but in terms of a Van Halen kind of success, it was a huge disappointment. And within a few years, Gary Sharon was no longer in the band. And so, just like Motley Crue, this version of the band did not end up making a second album. So let's move on to a singer replacement that actually did make it to a second album. But we're going to talk about the first album. That album is The X Factor from the band Iron Maiden. So in the early 90s, after the release and tour of the fabulous album Fear of the Dark, Bruce Dickinson decided that he wanted to leave to pursue his solo career. And so the band ended up recruiting a vocalist named Blaze Bailey as his replacement. Now, Blaze Bailey also had a career prior to this. He was the lead vocalist of a band called Wolfsbane, who had actually previously opened for Maiden. And they had an album that came out in 1989 called Live Fast, Die Fast. It's a pretty fucking good record, produced by Rick Rubin. It's kind of Van Halen-esque, but it's a great band. And he is a good singer, but he's not the kind of singer that Bruce Dickinson is. And therein lies the major issue with The X Factor and the album that followed it. From the very first track, which is an 11-minute track, mind you, that does not need to be that long. It does not warrant that amount of time for how interesting that song is. But from the moment Blaze starts singing, you can tell that he is in over his head. Big time. Now, the band sounds fantastic, as usual. But it seems like they're both struggling. They're trying to work with Blaze. Blaze is trying to work with these epic songs, but it's just not clicking. But you know what? I gotta give him credit. He gives it his best. And can you fault him for trying? Imagine a scenario where you were asked to be in Iron Maiden. I'd at least fucking give it a shot. I wouldn't say no to that. And I'm not even as good a singer as Blaze. Shit, I'd be totally fucked. But anyway, the big issue, I think, is the fact that the songs don't fit the vocalist. So if they had for some reason decided to try to do an album that was a little more like their first two albums... I think it totally would have worked because Paul Diano was also not a great singer. And so maybe kind of a rougher, harder edge may have been what these songs needed. 
And the couple of songs that do have that sort of rougher edge are the ones where shit actually works. Man on the Edge, great fucking song. 2 AM, another good song, but they're both simpler songs, more suited for Blaze Bailey. So things do click here and there. But most of the time, it seems like with the song Judgment of Heaven, that song sounds like they wrote it with Bruce Dickinson in mind, and he just wasn't there to sing it. In fact, a lot of the songs have these extended acoustic or mellow intros that slowly build, and those slow builds end up paying off when you've got a fucking Bruce Dickinson there to carry it and send it into the fucking stratosphere. Blaze Bailey, unfortunately, was not able to do that. And so overall, the X Factor is kind of a bummer. But you know what? They ended up making a second album with Blaze, so they must have been at least kind of pleased with how things turned out. And that does happen sometimes. Sometimes the replacement singer ends up lasting a little while. Which brings us to my fourth and final and favorite of the albums that I'm going to be talking about. And that is the 1993 album Sound of White Noise by Anthrax. Let's start this one off from my perspective. So Anthrax was and is one of my favorite bands. And in 1990, they released this amazing album called Persistence of Time. And I was so into them. And then around 1992, it was announced that Joey Belladonna, the vocalist, was fired for quote-unquote creative differences. And they ended up recruiting John Bush, who was formerly the vocalist of a pretty well-known metal band called Armored Saint. And I kind of knew them because I saw a couple of their videos on Headbangers Ball and whatnot, but I wasn't really that into them. But this was Anthrax, so I was super excited slash curious about what this new version of the band would sound like. And once again, I caught the premiere. Remember, I watched fucking Headbangers Ball religiously and MTV in general. I caught the premiere of the video for the song only. Now that is a fucking killer song. It's so well written. It's catchy and heavy and it's still got that fucking anthrax stomp all over it. I loved it, but it was a little bit of a departure. And just like with Motley Crue, it worked because the sound changed with the change of the vocalist. It seemed a little more natural. And apparently, I wasn't the only one that was okay with this change because the album was actually their highest charting album, hitting number seven on the Billboard charts. But let's get into this album a little bit. So it opens with the song Potter's Field, which is a killer opening track. It's heavy and in your face, and it's really good at introducing you to this new Anthrax style. And it goes straight into Only, which I've already told you is a fucking great song. But after that, the great thing about this album, like I've said before about many great albums, is that there's a variety to the songs. But not only that, this album at the time and now, sounds really unique. It's really heavy, but also pretty accessible, and it doesn't seem to be responding to a trend. 
it may have seemed that way at the time, but in hindsight, listening to this album, it really is kind of its own thing. And not only that, you get a fucking great performance from John Bush, who is a great vocalist. Once again, he is not Joey Belladonna, a very different vocalist, but the music had shifted and fit his singing style. I totally love this album. Now, to be fair, I am a bigger fan of Joey Belladonna than I am of John Bush, and I liked all the John Bush albums, but this one in particular is the one that has stuck with me and I think is the most perfect that they got it with him. And really, I don't think that Anthrax gets enough credit for that album and how they were really kind of one of the only metal bands that was able to successfully make that sort of leap into the 90s and alter their sound a little bit. They didn't get that big of a backlash that I can remember anyway. At any rate, I think The Sound of White Noise is a fucking great album. I love all 56 minutes of it. See, they got it a little bit under an hour, but it never seems like it overstays its welcome. And you know what? Before I overstay my welcome, I'm going to wrap up this episode. If you take anything away from what I've talked about today, I hope that it's that we always need to be open-minded when bands make changes because you never know how it can go and they could always end up going back to the way that it was and then we just end up left with a unique album that we can enjoy in kind of a different way or sometimes not enjoy at all but above all that the one thing you should take away from today's podcast is if somebody asks you to join Iron Maiden you say yes I appreciate you listening. If you've gotten this far, please remember to go to YouTube and search Old Head Podcasts and watch some of my videos and subscribe and like them and all of those things. Send me your thoughts, requests, whatever. Oldheadpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your support. I'm having a blast doing these, and I will see you guys again next time. Bye.